Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Our sermon text is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10, and you can find that on page 568. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is the word of the Lord. It's really good to be with you guys. And I'm excited to be continuing this sermon series in the book of Ephesians. We are three weeks into the series and we are still only on verse 7. And if that seems like a slow pace to you, I want to tell you it's, it's even slower than you realize because verses 3 through 14 are just one sentence. So we are taking three weeks to preach on just one sentence of the Bible. And honestly, as I've studied it, I'm not sure that's enough. Um, that's one of the ways you know you're dealing with the Word of God, that three weeks, that, that two hours of talking about it can't even scratch the surface of, of what you, the points you're trying to make. And this week might be the most important week we've, we've had so far because when we get to this, these few verses, we are dealing with the heart of this sentence. Everything else that we've been talking about up to this point and for the next few weeks, they all flow out of these three verses that we're looking at today. The sentence flows out of these verses, and you could say that the whole book itself flows out of these three verses. And honestly, if you want to take it a little bit further, it might be fair to say that all of the Christian life flows out of what Paul is describing right here. Because in these verses are the core promises of the gospel. Verses 7 through 10 tell us what Jesus has come to do for us and what that means for the world. And so we're going to have to take a little bit of time to dig into that. Those are big subjects, and so we need to take some time to explore that and find out what it means. But once we do, once we get to the main meaning of these verses, then we need to ask the question, have we truly experienced this? Do we truly understand the reality that these passages are describing? Do we know what this means for us to experience this in the church? And so that's our outline this morning. I want us to see what the gospel gives us why we often miss it, and then what we need to do about it. So what the gospel gives us, why we often miss it, and what we're supposed to do about it. Um, so let's talk about that. Basics. What does the gospel give us? There is a, a key concept that comes up over and over again in these verses. Uh, it is the idea that Christians are in Christ. Christians are in Christ. And it says those words, in Christ, or some version of that, 
11 times in these next few verses. It says, in Christ, in Him, in the Beloved. And there are a lot of answers to the question, what is the gospel? If you ask somebody to define it, there's a lot of different good explanations that people could give you, but one you don't hear very often, and one that I think may be the best description of the gospel, is to say the gospel is this, that we are in Christ. The gospel is the message of our union with Christ. Union with Christ. That is the, the concept that surrounds all of the Christian life. That every other benefit that you could think of, every other fact about Christianity that you could think of, every doctrine and every experience that you have as a Christian, all of it flows out of this idea that we are in union with Christ. Union with Christ. It's the ultimate promise of the Christian faith. And it is the thing that sets Christianity apart from every other religion. Right? If you think about it, that's, that's the truth. Like All the other religions, all the other worldviews are about what we need to do. Right? That there's a certain way to, to meditate or certain rules to follow or a certain political party to belong to and that's going to make you complete. Every other religious leader, every other ph philosophical teacher, they come with a set of doctrines to believe, with a set of rules to follow, Every teacher comes proclaiming, this is the way to God. This is the way to nirvana. Or this is the way to enlightenment. Or this is the way to healthy, secular thoughts. All of those teachers say, here's the way. But Jesus never said that. Jesus says, I am the way. And the essence of, a Christ of Christianity, the essence of our salvation is this concept this idea that the gospel is not about what we do, it's not about the rules we follow, but it's about this new reality that God has reunited us to Him in Christ. That God has reunited all of creation in Christ. And so, that's where we start. Everything in Christianity, it flows out of this idea of being in Christ. And, and there are three things specifically that we see in this verse. Uh, that Paul's trying to point out. Three things that are a result of us being in Him. And the first is, in Him, it says, we have redemption. You can look in your Bibles if you got them, open them up. It's verse 7. In Him, we have redemption through His blood. And we know that word, redemption, right? It's deliverance by the payment of a price. It's that same idea on the bottom of the glass bottles that you get at Tedeschi, right? The, the redemption price is five cents. And so you go and you get your drink, you drink it, you bring it back, and they pay you five cents, and they buy their bottle back. So that's, that's the co core concept of redemption. This particular word that Paul uses is uh, most frequently used for buying back slaves. And that's exactly how Scripture talks about us. That is the way that Scripture talks about our status, that we are slaves to sin. Over and over again, Scripture tells us we are not our own. That even the most independent among us, even the most free-spirited among us, we have no choice but to serve the things of the world. 
We have no choice but to be mastered by the powers and the principalities, to be mastered by Satan, sin, and death. In other words, it tells us there is always something that rules over us. And it might be our drive for success. It might be our political values. It might be our desire to be a good parent. It really could be anything. But it's like that Bob Dylan song says, you got to serve somebody. That's the message of Scripture. you got to serve somebody. The powers of this world always master us and they own us. But the blood of Christ is the price of our freedom. Paul's telling us that Christ is the redemption. That His death is the price that God has paid to buy us back. We've been redeemed in Him. Secondly, he says, in Him, we have forgiveness. So not only does Christ's death buy back our life, but it goes on to say His life replaces our life. Look, at, look again at the passage. It says that we are forgiven, verse 7, according to the riches of His grace. I wish we could take a little time and just kind of sit in that thought for a second. That we are forgiven according to the riches of God's grace. He's saying that the, the degree of our forgiveness in Christ is as abundant as all of God's grace. You're not forgiven according to the richness of your grace. You're not forgiven according to the richness of my grace. Right? I, you can ask my children about the richness of my grace. Right? I think I'm a pretty gracious dad. Right? If you, if you do something wrong, I'll give you a warning. Right? I might even give you a second warning. And if, if you really you know, make a fuss about it, I might even give you a third chance. But after that, my grace is going to run out. After that, you have reached the limit and there will be a consequence for what you've done. But it tells us in Christ, God has forgiven us according to the limitless riches of His grace. And that is not a grace that is begrudgingly given. It's not a grace that you have to beg Him to give you. But what's the word here? Do you, do you see it? It says, His grace which He has lavished upon us. I really like that. He's lavished it upon us. It's not a word you use a whole lot, right? Lavished. What do you think about when you hear the word lavished? Lately I've been watching this YouTube show and it's called uh, Worth It. Does anybody, nobody's ever seen this. I don't know how things come to me on YouTube. But, but I've been watching it a lot. It comes out like every week. And on the show, these guys, they go and they, they try to find the least expensive version of something and the most expensive version of something, and then they compare it all and say, which one is the most worth it? So they get like a $1 slice of pizza and then like a $100 slice of pizza that's coated in gold or something. And they eat it and they tell you about it. And uh, on one of these episodes, they did buffets. And so they went to the cheapest buffet they could find, and then they went to this buffet that was $95. And it was called the Sterling Brunch. Apparently, it's a very famous place. And on this buffet, there was uh, champagne, filet mignon, lobster, caviar, as much as you wanted. Piles and piles of this most expensive food on earth. 
That's lavished, right? That's what this is getting at, that there is an unlimited amount of grace, an, an insane amount of grace has been poured out to us. That He has expended His grace upon us without limits. We have been given the permanent status of forgiven. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says that for our sake, God made Jesus to become sin for us so that in Him, right, in union with Him, we could become the righteousness of God. That means because we have union with Christ, because we are in Christ, we are now redeemed and forgiven. We are always and forever seen as righteous. And that's not even the best part. That's what I, I can't get over as I've been looking at this passage. It says, in Him we have been uh, redeemed. In Him we have been forgiven. But the main point starts in verse 9. Look at it with me. It says, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him. Things in heaven and things on earth. He's telling us that in Christ, we have seen the mystery. That's the third thing. In Christ, we have seen this mystery. When God united us to Christ, He has revealed to us where the whole universe is headed. That He has this plan to unite all things in Him. The things on heaven and the things on earth. So there's, there's two elements of this reconciling work that's happening. On one hand, the things in heaven are being reconciled. There's this cosmic redemption that's going on. There is a defeat of Satan and sin and death. There is this method now that, that God is bringing each and every one of us into a relationship with Him again. But then, there is also this earthly element. Paul tells us that that all the things on earth are going to be united under His rule. The ultimate promise of the Gospel is that all things will be united in Him. That all of eternity is going to come back under the headship of Jesus. That His plan is to set creation back the way that it's meant to be. That biblical idea that's called Shalom. It means the end of war. It means the end of injustice. It means the end of partisan politics and the end of racism. It means the end of all misunderstandings and all division that exists on this earth. It means the end of rents we can't afford. It means the end of poverty. It means the end of all need. Doesn't that sound awesome? Isn't that unbelievable? But here's the craziest part. Here's the craziest part. He says, this has already been made known to us. That in Him, we have already begun 
to see this take place. Now, a lot of this stuff is not yet. A lot of this stuff is, is just a distant dream. But he's saying that there is a place here on earth where Christ has already begun this work, this unifying work. There is a place where Christ is already the head of all things. And it's the church. In the Gospel of John, as, as Jesus is praying, here's what he says. He prays to God that, for the church. And here's how he prays. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as I loved you. God's plan is for the church to be this ultimate place of unity. It's to be the place where we experience that unity right now, where we experience that cosmic reconciliation, that we have been forgiven, that we have been redeemed, that the powers have been defeated, but also the place where we experience the earthly reconciliation, that we are made one with each other, that we are now under the common headship of Jesus, that there is no more strife here, and no more division here, and that there is no more need among us. Now, doesn't that describe us? Does that describe us? I don't know. Not really. So why not? That's the second thing I want to ask us this morning. That's what I think we need to talk about. If this is what the Gospel has done, why are we missing it? Why don't we feel that kind of unity and union? Why don't we declare these truths and experience them day to day? Well, I think that at least one reason for that is because we are a nation of consumers. That's fair to say, right? We are a nation of consumers. We live in this crazy world where pretty much anything on earth, if we want it, we can get it right now. With the click of a button, it can be on our doorstep in two days. And if that's too excruciating for you, I just heard that Amazon has started their new two-hour delivery in Boston. So if you can't wait, you can actually get it delivered to your doorstep in two hours just by thinking about it right now, pressing a button. And it's not just the things we buy, right? It's, it's everything. We're, we're cable cutters now, right? We don't watch the shows that people have programmed for us, but we choose the shows we like. And we choose them from every show that's ever been made. Whenever we want to, we can watch it. And we don't listen to the radio. We've left the radio behind, and now we go to the internet, and we curate the music that we like. We only listen to, to our style of music, whether it's indie rock or trap music, we have figured out that we never again need to hear a Britney Spears song. So, what do we do? We have lived in this world where we have, have tailored everything to fit our liking. We live in this world where we are able to get whatever we want, whenever we want. So, is it any surprise that when we go to find a church, 
We call it shopping. And it's a good name for it because that's exactly what it is. We look for a church the same way we look for any other commodity. It's just like going to the mall. It's just like you know, browsing Amazon.com. We go and we look for the things that we want. And we walk into a place and we say, is this music my kind of music? Are these people my kind of people? Is the preaching my kind of preaching? Is, how are the bathrooms? How are the chairs? What's the childcare like? And when those are the main uh, criteria for finding a church, well, they're also the main criteria for leaving a church. We leave churches because we're not comfortable there anymore. We leave churches because they're, they're no longer satisfying to us. Maybe because we get into conflict with somebody. Or because all of a sudden, you know, our schedules are changing and it doesn't really fit in with our plans. Or, or just because we need a change. You know, we need to spice things up. So we're going to go find a better place. And I see, I know on this sunny day where, like, you guys are the ones who are here. <laughs> You're thinking, I don't do that. I think your preaching is awful, but I still come every week. But even if you don't, even if you don't think that describes you, I want to say you cannot help but be shaped by the culture you're in. You cannot help be shaped by this because this is in the air we breathe. This is the world that we live in. And the point of this passage, the thing that Paul is trying to drive home to us is that God's plan for the church is so much bigger than that that it has almost no resemblance to it. God's plan for the church is so much different than the way we treat the church that it looks like an entirely different thing when we read about it. Christ's plan for the church is that we would be one even as God the Son is one with God the Father. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Think about that. Think about what that prayer means. Think about what Christ is hoping and begging the Lord to build this church into. The church is meant to be a place where we can bear our souls with each other without fear. The church is meant to be a relationship that defines us. Not a club that's based on our preferences. A family. And more than a family, a body, it says. A body that is joined together with Christ at the head. The church is supposed to be a place where, where singles can come and they will never feel isolated and they will never feel lonely and they will never feel second class. It's supposed to be a place where married couples can come and they can show their mess and their struggles without fear, without a need to hide. It's supposed to be a place where children can come and be nurtured and taught, not just entertained and, and babysat. The church is supposed to be a community 
where the people believe and know that they have been given to one another as a gift. But we don't really have that very often in the church. And I think that's because we are, we are unwilling to take these verses seriously. We don't want to take these verses about unity seriously because we come as consumers. We don't want to be in a place where we have to embrace some discomfort, where we have to deal with some things that we don't like. I think we miss out on unity because unity requires that we deal with some hard stuff. It requires that we work through painful things instead of just finding a place that, that makes us feel good. Christ intended for the church to live in covenant with each other. And that's why when you join a church, you have vows. When you become a member of a church, you say these sets of vows, and they essentially say, I believe in Jesus, and I commit that we're going to care for each other. The way we put it in our tradition is we say that we would seek the peace and purity of the church which is kind of an old, stuffy way of saying, when bad stuff happens, when tough things come up, we're going to work through it. But I was thinking about that this week. I was trying to imagine what it would be like if we took some of our other vows, if we took the other covenants we make in life, if we took them as lightly as we often take the vows we make in the church. My first argument when I was married. Uh, the first argument on our honeymoon happened when Melissa politely informed me the first day of our marriage that all my life I had been getting out of the shower on the wrong side. <laughs> and that began a heated discussion which has benefited my sanctification now for 10 years. <laughs> um, but what if at that moment I had instead said, Look, I like things a certain way, and clearly you don't like them that much. You don't do things the same way as me. Maybe instead, I'm just going to go around town and check out what some of the other wives are like. <laughs> I'm going to try them on for size and see if we might be a better fit. And you know, when I leave, if you make a big enough fuss, if you make me feel special enough, maybe I'll come back and visit you someday. Maybe on Easter. What if we treated our, our covenants the same way we treat these vows that we make to the church? I think the point is this. As long as we approach the church like it's a commodity, instead of a people to whom God has entrusted our souls, we are never going to understand this. As long as we believe that our salvation is only about this vertical stuff, that our salvation is only about the cosmic thing that happens between us and God, and it's never about this horizontal thing. That Jesus is reconciling us together as well. We will not know this kind of union. If we are unwilling to do the hard work, if we're not willing to live life with sinners and to pursue holiness together, even when there's ups and downs, if we can't stick together through a couple of disagreements, 
and still commit to love each other. If we can't let our own sin get exposed without feeling like we've got to run away, if we can't do that stuff, then we will never be anything more than a Sunday service. One service amongst many services that you can choose from. But we won't be the church. We'll be a weekly meeting, a gathering of religious consumers. So, what's the solution? What do we do about this? If this is so deeply ingrained in our thinking, in the way we approach this, this church, the church, how do we change? What's the answer? How do we experience this kind of union that Paul tells us exists now? Well, I think first we need to just admit what's at the root of all that consumerism. We need to see what's at the, the, the root of all that materialism. Uh, C.S. Lewis has the book, The Great Divorce. Maybe some of you have read that before. It's like a fictional book where he imagines uh, a picture of what hell could be like. And in the imagined world, it's a world where people rub up against each other. Maybe they try to have a conversation or two, but as soon as they have a disagreement, they separate and move on. And they say, instantly you can build a house away from that person. And on and on and on, these disagreements, on until eternity. So the people who have been there the longest, he says it's like a, just a speck of light way out on the horizon. The impulse of materialism carried out to eternity is a much deeper rebellion. Something much worse that resides in our hearts. Our commitment to having everything the way we want, when we want them, is a much bigger problem. Because ultimately, it's about the fact that we want to be in charge. Ultimately, it's about the fact that we want to be the ones calling the shots. We want to be the one at the top. We want to have everything our way, and that means in the very end, we want nothing to do with God, and we want nothing to do with anyone else. And you know, Scripture tells us that, that left to our own instincts, left to those desires, that is exactly what we're going to get. That is exactly where we are headed. Eternal isolation. Apart from God. Apart from each other. But God, in His mercy, has come. God in His mercy has come to stubborn and selfish and divided people. And Paul tells us He has lavished His grace on us. He stepped in. And He allowed His Son to get the punishment that we were supposed to get. God the Son who had just prayed that we would know that amazing unity that God the Son has with God the Father was cut off that he was cast out, that he was isolated so that we could be brought in. He redeemed us by his death. He forgave us by giving his life for our life. And now, his resurrection power is at work. 
At this very moment, right now, God is reconciling people to himself. And God is reconciling us to each other in the church. So I think the simple answer to what's it going to take, the first step is that we need to repent. We need to come to him in faith and repent. And we need to turn to each other and we need to repent. We need to admit that we have cared far more about our desires than God's desires for us. We need to admit that we have cared much more about ourselves than the people that God has joined us to. We need to repent. And secondly, we need to believe. We need to believe this promise that's laid out for us right here. That we have this opportunity in Him to experience heaven right now. That we don't have to wait for eternity to see this. We can experience that cosmic reconciliation, that earthly reconciliation. We can experience that here, in this room, in this city, in this community. We've got to believe that. That that's what God wants to do with us. And so I want to leave us this morning with, with both an invitation and a charge. The invitation is simple. If you hear this picture of, of a home, of a family, of a community, of, of unity, and you find your soul longing for that, maybe you've never known Jesus, maybe you've never considered yourself a Christian, or maybe you're already a member of this church, but you still don't feel it. I want to invite you to believe the gospel is union with Christ and union with one another. This is what we are made for. I want to invite you to come to Jesus. Rest in Him and lean on His church. I know that, that this, there are plenty of people who are ready to receive you and to love you and to care for you here in this room. That's my invitation. And my charge is to the rest of us. Let's be the church. Let's, let's be different. Let, let's, let's see this take place in our congregation. Let's be so caught up in our union with Christ that we cannot even see ourselves apart from this body. Let's not just be another service. Let's be in each other's homes. Let's share meals and prayers. Let's delight in God's Word together. Let's love our neighbors. Let's welcome them in. Let's become a church that really reflects this neighborhood. Let's share the gospel and see the world come in. Let's be united. Let's show the glory to the world. Let's prove the gospel to this city. All things in heaven and on earth, united in Him. Let's pray. Father, I am, feel so unworthy to try to unpack 
all that you have in these words. There is a depth and a richness here that I know in this life I'm never going to really understand. But Lord, when I hear the promise of what You want to do in Your church, when I see the, the gift that You've given us in one another, and when I think about uh, what You intend to do with us from here until eternity, Lord, I pray that You would work. I pray, God, that You would transform this body and that You would make us something holy, something different, something that shows the truth of Jesus Christ to the world. I pray in His name. Amen.